The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit www.gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff, and I'm your host. Today I have with me in the studio Dr. Joseph A. Piper Jr., the president of the seminary, who will be fielding some um, very good questions this month. A lot has been happening in our Reformed and Evangelical circles. A lot of important conversations are taking place, and some of you have submitted questions regarding them. Dr. Piper, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Zach. It's always good to be with you. Thanks, Dr. Piper. I'm going to share some announcements about things that are upcoming here at the seminary for the benefit of our listeners. But before I do that, would you open us in a word of prayer? Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we adore you and we bless your holy name. We thank you that you're our God. We thank you for Christ, your Son, our Savior, for the Spirit who unites us uh, to Christ, to you, triune God. We thank you, the God of all wisdom, for your word and the spirit who illumines that word. And we ask now, as we would deal with these important issues, that your spirit would give us insight and clarity. And we ask these things for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Dr. Piper. This year, 2018, marks Dr. Piper's 20th year as president of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. And in recognition of that fact, we have themed our spring scholarship banquet around a celebration of Dr. Piper's 20th anniversary. So if you, uh, if you appreciate Dr. Piper's ministry, if you just want to celebrate with us, or if you love Greenville Seminary and you want to support our scholarship fund for, for students here at the school, please consider joining us on Thursday, March 15th in downtown Greenville at the Commerce Club for what promises to be a lovely evening of uh, not just reminiscence and remembrance and celebration, but also of looking ahead, looking to the future of what's in store for Greenville Seminary. Again, that's Thursday, March 15th at the Pierce Ballroom in downtown Greenville in the Commerce Club. And we look forward to seeing you there. More information about the banquet is available at gpts.edu slash banquet. Now, the banquet comes at the tail end of a three-day theological conference that we hold here in Greenville area every year. And this year, the theme of our conference is Christology. It's the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. We have an awesome lineup of speakers, and I, I invite you to, to check out more information about that at gpts.edu slash conference. Again, that's gpts.edu slash conference. That would be March 13th through the 15th. We already have uh, a lot of people registered to join us, and we're looking forward to seeing that number swell as we get closer to the date. Now, finally, Finally, before the conference on the 12th and 13th, we have a prospective student open house called GPTS Explore. So we have a lot going on that week, and I, I implore you all, if you know of a prospective student that might be interested in checking out Greenville Seminary for his theological education, please tell him about that open house and encourage him to check out gpts.edu conference to see if this might be a good year to check us out. 
And with that, I think it's time to dive into our questions. What do you say, Dr. Piper? Uh, we got a lot to talk about today. Our first issue has been addressed already by some luminaries within the PCA, and, and, I'm, and I'm glad for that. Uh, but here's, here's the story. A PCA ruling elder is running for the office of governor of Texas and has gone on record saying that he will veto any legislation in his state that would restrict a that would restrict a pregnant woman from obtaining an abortion in the Lone Star State. He's also said that he celebrates the 45th anniversary of Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court decision that made the murder of unborn children legal in this country, and he has enthusiastically adopted other markedly anti-Christian planks of his party's platform. What's interesting here is his reasoning. He does not, in fact, I don't think he can, but he does not say that his political stances are products of biblically informed reflection. Rather, he has sought to resolve the discord between his Christian identity and profession of faith and political positions by echoing men like Joe Biden, Tim Kaine, uh, Bob Casey, and others in his party. He affirms his personal, moral, and religious opposition to abortion while saying that he politically supports a woman's legal right to procure an abortion. Dr. Piper, is this man denying his faith and responsibilities as an ordained ruling elder in the Presbyterian Church in America? You know, Zach, this is, is very important. It is shaking uh, the Presbyterian Church in America fairly profoundly. I would say in the first place, yes, if his views have been correctly uh, communicated, if he did say these things, and that needs to be verified by any of us that would deal with him, then in fact he has uh, denied uh, the scriptures as well as his own ordination vows. Some of you that might not know, in the Presbyterian Church in America, uh, elders and deacons uh, take a vow of subscription that they believe the doctrines of the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms. And in the larger catechism, uh, some very important uh, questions, uh, commentary on the uh, fifth commandment, which is discussed in terms of responsibilities and sins of peers, inferiors, and superiors. 130, what are the sins of superiors? And I would put a magistrate in the position of a superior, he is in a certain class, uh, elected government official then, is superior to those whom he would govern. The sins of superiors are besides a neglect of the duties required of them as an inordinate seeking of themselves, their own glory, ease, profit, or pleasure, commanding things unlawful are not in the power of inferiors to perform, counseling, encouraging, are favoring them in that which is evil. Now, that's his political stance. And then what um, uh, are required of superiors is that they, uh, according to the power they receive from God in that relation wherein they stand to love, pray for, bless their inferiors, to instruct, counsel, and admonish them, countenancing, commending, and rewarding such as do well, and discountenancing, reproving and chastising such as do ill. And then we come over to the sixth commandment and the sins uh, that are uh, forbidden. The sins forbidden in the sixth commandment are all taking away the life of ourselves or of others except in case of public justice, lawful war, or unnecessary defense. Neglecting or withdrawing the lawful and necessary means of the preservation 
of life. Now, clearly, his political stance neglects and withdraws that for all unborn babies when he said he would veto any legislation. This would mean even legislation in terms of full-term full term abortions. So it is a, a serious uh, problem. Now, Zach has pointed out uh, in the question that it is similar to what other, mostly Roman Catholics, have done uh, in the Democratic Party with respect to abortion. But I th- I'm afraid, Zach, that it is, in fact, a, it's symptomatic of where we are in some portion of the Presbyterian Church in America, that uh, we are letting the culture define what we will speak out against with respect to sin. And so uh, racism, which of course is a sin, is, happens to be the big hot issue. Social justice, everybody's willing to uh, speak out on these issues. But we have got a history now of a number of years in the Presbyterian Church in America of not addressing homosexual issues, same-sex marriage, um, uh, same-sex attraction, and now this matter of abortion. There is a, I heard this morning of a Pew um, poll that uh, claims that 53% of members of the Presbyterian Church in America um, would not be against Roe versus Wade legislation. Which is surprising to me, and that 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 particular figure could be colored by the fact that denominational affiliation was required to be self-reported in that survey, and a lot of people in the pews, um, certainly in the PCUSA, but also in the PCA and, and other denominations, may have a harder time distinguishing between <laughs> the many split peas in this country. But even if it's thirty percent, you know what we have is a serious problem here because we have been silent. On these issues, the whole progressive element, I think, in our denomination, is pushing us in this direction. I, in in my opinion, this is going to be a a, a, a if not the lightning rod issue uh, in our denomination. And so, uh, Lord willing, uh, if this is Mr. White's position, that he will repent. Uh, and if he doesn't repent, that his session would then uh, deal with him as a brother. But if he doesn't repent, they discipline him. Um, if that doesn't happen, there are other courses of action uh, in the Presbyterian Church in America Book of Order uh, that can be taken. But the issue's got to be dealt with. I, I was surprised the way it has capitulated in 10 days uh, throughout um, the nation. I also would just speak to your pastors and any ruling elders who will either are listening now or will listen to this podcast later. Right now, the progressive wing of the church is running the show. Unless ruling elders begin to go to General Assembly, uh, that's going to continue to happen. We need our ruling elders to step up, step forward, and uh, bring some biblical sanity, uh, particularly to the highest court in our denomination. And so churches, um, uh, whatever you have to do to get ruling elders there, Ruling elders go right to the administration committee and say, I can't afford to pay your $450, but I'm coming to the General Assembly and I expect to vote. It's just time that the ruling elders stood up and, because uh, humanly speaking, uh, this denomination right now I think lies on the shoulders of our ruling elders. 
And so many of our churches have already given up and are staying home, and that's not right either. Um, if you're a part of this nomination, you need to be there. Uh, you need to be there in Atlanta and uh, stand for the truth on a number of important issues that will be before the assembly. As a young man in seminary preparing for ministry in the PCA, I desire to be in a denomination that is unequivocally opposed to um, to the taking away of human life, that is unequivocally opposed to racism and any other form of outward evil. And so I, I second Dr. Piper's impassioned plea that ruling elders would step up and attend not just General Assembly, but also Presbytery and, and all the courts of the church with utmost diligence and vigor for the sake of enduring reformation in the United States and particularly in the Presbyterian Church in America. Please be there. And you know, um, on Harry Reader's podcast, which I would encourage you all to listen to as well, it's a Briarwood podcast done Friday, February the 2nd. He threw a challenge out to seminaries as well. And I encourage all of you, whatever seminary you're involved with, you right now contact that seminary. What is your stance? What do you teach your students? What's the stance of your graduates out there with respect to pro-life issues? I think he's right that uh, a lot of the problem can begin right down here at this level. We've got some very strange views that circulate now in our Reformed uh, uh, ethos in terms of the Christian's role or lack thereof outside the church, the application of Scripture outside the church. These things are very problematic, as well as uh, the hyper-grace movement. Uh, And so it's very important that uh, at the seminary level, uh, we are clear in the classroom, in our chapels with our graduates and students, uh, that uh, all biblical issues uh, are important and are to be uh, practiced and preached and taught. And with that note, we're going to move into our second question, which deals specifically with a certain practice in seminaries. And uh, one of our listeners wrote in uh, this information to us and asked us to pose it in the form of a question, so I'm giving some background information as well. But Desiring God Ministries recently published an online audio discussion and written transcript by pastor, preacher, and seminary educator John Piper in which he answers the question, is there a place for female professors at seminary? I'm going to cut to the chase here. Uh, Dr. Piper being careful not to denigrate female biblical and theological scholars suggests that only men qualified for and experienced in pastoral ministry ought to be teaching in seminaries. The basis for his argument, in short, is that the proper demand on the seminary teacher is to be an embodiment of the pastoral office. Now, this, this is, you know, having to do with a, a broadly evangelical Calvinistic Baptist. What does this have to do with the Reformed and Presbyterian world? Well, at least one confessionally Reformed Presbyterian blogger has commended uh, the work of, of a certain writer in response to Dr. Piper's post. And the question is, should seminaries good, give heed to Dr. Piper, or should they accept um, the advice of certain others who would push back against John Piper's view, or is there some other way of approaching the question? The most important part of Dr. Piper's uh, answer is that we should have pastors training pastors. Now, that is a principle we have at Greenville Seminary. We do not see ourselves as simply another graduate school. We see ourselves as the academy serving the church. And so whatever the subject matter is, Hebrew, Greek, church history, as well as systematics and uh, uh, preaching and the practical courses or whatever, uh, we want all those courses to be taught moving towards the preaching pastoral ministry. 
And so we then only want men who have had at least minimum of five years of pastoral experience uh, to be teaching. So they would have their academic work done as well, but they're coming as pastors to help prepare men for the pastorate. Now, because we approach this in terms of preparing men for the ministry, and I agree with Dr. Piper that um, uh, women should not be teaching at theological seminaries. And, I, you know, he's been careful. He's not denigrating female biblical theological scholars. Women uh, teach at the university level or a Christian college level. That's not what he was addressing, and that's not the, the thing that I'm addressing now. It is at the seminary level. Even a course like biblical languages, we don't just teach Greek and Hebrew um, in a way that uh, you just learn the language. We are teaching these languages from the first day in the classroom to move towards the preparation of a sermon. In fact, because of that, even though we will have uh, Master of Arts ladies take uh, the Greek and Hebrew introduction intermediate courses, they may not take the exegesis courses because those courses, again, are designed to move to sermon uh, preparation. So I think it's very important. I think he is right on the target uh, with respect to this. Now, I'll interact some by looking at uh, a series of follow-ups that have been made to him and interact with them. The first one um, was an author, speaker, blogger, and seminary graduate, uh, Matt uh, uh, Maclacatus or Maclacatus. Um, Six thoughts uh, to say that seminaries should hire women professors. Uh, The first is in Acts 18, uh, Priscilla is teaching uh, Apollos, a man called to be a preacher. Uh, Yes, informally, it's very important. We have students in our home interacting, my wife and I with them. Um, They're going to learn from my wife as well as from me. Uh, It's very important that we all learn from one another in the body of Christ. It has nothing to do with formal instruction in the classroom. Second, uh, seminary is not a church, Uh, and that's true, but we are the handmaiden to the church to help the church prepare her men for pastoral ministry. Now, there'll be seminaries that will be more broadly uh, focused, in their task. And so if a seminary had an education program uh, and they had a track there for women to be involved in uh, Christian education, um, that's another issue. I don't think Dr. Piper was addressing that issue. But a place like us, we're, we're here for one primary reason. Everything else we teach, other people come take courses, is still uh, functioning on uh, preparing men for the ministry. His third uh, argument was, God often uses women to impart spiritual insight to men serving in church leadership. Amen. Uh, My wife keeps me on track. Um, She has godly wisdom, and the women around me have godly wisdom, and I appreciate that wisdom. And we learn, again, in the body of Christ from one another. Fourth, men are called to pastor both men and women, and a woman's instruction is valuable toward that end. Well, it's very interesting 
And when the apostle lays out the qualifications of teaching and leading in the church, he limits it to men. He didn't seem to be bothered by the fact that men were going to be um, having to teach women. In fact, he says that women may teach women, uh, particularly in the area of female piety and domestic responsibilities, but he doesn't say that a woman can uh, only learn things from a woman or that uh, a minister cannot uh, understand uh, what a woman needs to know. Now, uh, this is not ruling out the fact that uh, uh, you could have a woman come into a, a biblical counseling class and talk to the men about uh, particular difficulties that women in the church might have. It's not saying you wouldn't have people come in and help. We used a, a lady to come in in the rhetoric class and do a thing on speech development. Uh, but she wasn't a professor. She came in and gave a, a two-hour uh, course uh, in an area in which she had expertise. And I don't think Dr. Piper, and I know I'm not, opposed to that. We're talking about professors on the faculty of the seminary. And then um, a good pastor must learn to listen to women. Well, yes, but um, I think I've already addressed that. And then he puts out this a little caveat that uh, if you're looking for a seminary and you find one that doesn't hire women, keep looking. You deserve a school that will do better. And I'd say just the opposite. If you're looking for a seminary that's committed to preparing men for the pastoral ministry, then pick one that holds to these um, principles. So there's been now further follow-up on this. And one confessionally reformed Presbyterian lady blogger um, has uh, backed uh, the response to uh, Dr. Piper, and it was sad to uh, to see that. And then another pro-female seminary professor has written, my male colleagues wanted me to help train our upcoming shepherds in ways they themselves would never be able to help, like telling what it's like to be a female parishioner sitting under a male preacher and what it's like to be a female fertility patient in need of pastoral care, and modeling how a sister can love brothers without hypocrisy or weirdness and in mysterious ways we cannot even quantify. Those in training to provide pastoral care need men and women helping to shape them because the church is not a single-parent family. When healthy, it's a two-parent family with mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers. Besides, pastors in training need to see that men and women in leadership can partner in the gospel and really love their colleagues with a holy love because complementarity means we are not the same because we're not the same, we lack something when we go it alone, because we are made to need each other, male and female, imaging God together. So together we must image God fully as we seek to nurture this generation and the next with none of us saying, I have no need of you. Well, again, I think the response misses the, the issue of having a woman professor or having a woman come in and, and um, give a lecture in a counseling class, provide counseling for women, uh, with women, that would also be very different. Our church has a female counselor who um, works with the women in the church, and it's nice that we can have uh, that kind of, of resource. But it's a, it's a fairly unique American concept that um, men cannot minister to women in these situations. It's uh, biblically, I, I think that uh, it's clear that 
men who are sensitive, trained by the Spirit in the Word can do that. But again, we're not opposed to having uh, a, a lady come in and uh, uh, speak to the class about particular uh, pastoral issues. And the thing that comes to my mind, Dr. Piper, is that this isn't really a, a matter of... Um, of gaining other perspectives. When you come to seminary, your your goal is to get a handle on biblical teaching as best you can. And so what's implicit in these arguments against Dr. Piper's point, and I guess against what your points would be, Dr. Piper, is that the Bible, the Word of God, is not sufficient for training a man right. for ministry uh, that you need to 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 have a, a, fem, a female perspective uh, in a classroom setting over the course of a, of a semester-long class in order to really get prepared to be a pastor. And, I mean, that's offensive to the Word of God, which tells us that, you know, men are to be trained by men for ministry. Well, Zach, I guess we've thrown enough grenades. We got one more. Yes. So this is a great question from so follow up because we've been dealing with blogs. Yes. So th- this is this is related uh, peripherally to the last question. Lowell Ivy of Virginia Beach. He's one of our graduates. He's an OPC pastor, church planter there in Virginia Beach. He asks this: There seems to be a developing trend in Reformed churches and in evangelical Christianity more broadly, in which innovative thinking and teaching gets promoted on social media without any ecclesiastical oversight at local church levels. The danger, I think, is that the voices church members should be listening to for matters of faith and practice are being drowned out by other voices. How should pastors deal with this trend? For example, men and women in our congregation follow blogs, read Christian online news outlets, and listen to podcasts. Through these media, they are influenced by public intellectuals, men and women, whose voices are getting louder and at times more strident. But the ordinary pastor seems to have no way to hold the people attached to those voices accountable for what they say. And my suspicion is that the church members God has placed under the care of my church's session hear the voices of influential public intellectuals more than they hear the voices of their pastor and elders. So, Mr. Public Intellectual, Dr. Piper, how would you answer this? (laughs) That's good. And yes, uh, I agree uh, with the the direction that Uh, of Lowell's question. I've said for a number of years here that the the first problem with the uh, social media world is the lack of accountability. I think that no one should have uh, a biblical or theological podcast who is not responsible to a group of spiritual overseers who are elders in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if it's somebody in the local church, they need to be under their session with sessions approval and uh, scrutiny. Uh, someone in our case is answerable to a board of uh, ruling and teaching elders that listen to what we have to say, both in the classroom and uh, on the air like this. And we are accountable, and we're accountable. We're held to a confessional standard as well. I think that's very important. So what we have now is a lot of self-appointed men and women teachers. And so for me, that's even a bigger problem than the public intellectuals, is that we have self-appointed. Anybody that wants to have a podcast can have it. And they can get out there and uh, they can, particularly if they're articulate, uh, can actually be influential. But they're not tested and they've not 
been cleared and what they have to say has not been uh, cleared by a group of of elders overseeing their work. So that that's my first problem with what's going on. The second is this whole celebrity mentality that really underlies Lowell's question, and that is that uh, uh, Mr. So-and-so that's on um, whatever program this is, but we're really talking mostly about those who start their own. Even some of the other programs are at least under a board of directors, of pastors who are looking over the shoulder of what's being said, although sometimes it can be pretty outrageous what they say or write. Uh, At least there's some other accountability there. Then the second has to do with piggybacking on the last question, and that is this whole role of women bloggers um, on their podcast and holding forth on exegetical and theological uh, positions I get myself in a lot of trouble, take some heat off John Piper, but um, I think that is exceedingly dangerous, and I think that's again, begins to violate. Uh, I realize there's a thin line. I don't have a problem with a woman writing a book. Uh, that book, I can argue with it. I can tear it up and throw it away or whatever. It's a private conversation. We've In our culture, we've uh, I think we've elevated this uh, social media broadcast to a bit of a higher level. And so it's carrying an authority it shouldn't have. And again, we're getting, I mean, we get some pretty atrocious things that are being said out there, and they're not being tested. And so I encourage people uh, to feed on the Word, to be under their elders, committed to the preaching of their pastor, uh, and let your pastor be your primary um, teacher. And if you're listening to other things, uh, if they are not being themselves screened, then you let your session screen those things uh, for you. Thank you for the question, Lowell. We appreciate it. Now, moving on to a question from our dear friend Lucas Salgado of Recife, Brazil. This, again, is related to the foregoing um, conversation that we've been having today. Lucas asks, does a man need to be efficient, gifted, or talented or effective in all areas of the ministry. He lists preaching, counseling, missions, evangelism, theological teaching. To be a pastor, I've seen pastors that are excellent preachers, but are not very good counselors. I've also seen good evangelists who are weak in the area of theological teaching. Thank you, Lucas. When we look at the qualifications uh, for our elders in 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, and then particularly look at 1 Timothy 4, in terms of the responsibility of uh, of the pastor, uh, it seems to me there's a, there is a skill set that God gives to all men whom He calls to the ministry, and that skill set is going to have to include well, not just skill set, but sanctification, uh, godliness, uh, some physical apparatus that enables a man to be able to teach and preach uh, publicly. But then when we look at the particular gift set, for example, in Romans chapter 12, we have three things here. We have uh, teaching, preaching, and administration leadership. And I take those gifts in Romans 12 that all seven of those gifts belong to the teaching elder, six belong to the ruling elder, and at least three belong to the deacons. And others in the congregation outside of the preaching, we'll have one or more of those gifts. 
But the, the pastor, to some degree, is to have gifts, both uh, as a preacher, teacher, a deacon, and administrator. And I think that we've made a big mistake today to say, well, he's gifted for missions, and he's gifted for evangelism, he's gifted for counseling. There is the gift of exhortation, which I put counseling under that gift of exhortation. I think that uh, a pastor who's going to do pastoral care uh, has to have that gift. Now, I realize today as we talk about counseling, we, uh, we're, we're going a step well, we're going a number of steps beyond what a pastor would do in terms of pastoral care. We're talking now about special training. Uh, and I think there can be men who would be uh, equipped to be good counselors in the church, but I would not want to see them ordained to the ministry. Because if you don't have that teaching, preaching gift, then you should not be ordained to the ministry. We, our ordination is to the Word and to the sacraments. Now, uh, and so what we what we have found historically is that these people, though he's a great evangelist, he doesn't know a lot of theology, or he can't preach well, and we send him to the mission field. Well, it's it does disservice to everybody. And so, a church planner or a missionary can be a pastor who has certain um, interest and flexibility. Uh, they go beyond the regular gifts for ministry. But he must have all those gifts for ministry. And then as he looks at his uh, personality, his ability to interact cross-culturally or with uh, people or whatever. Uh, but every pastor must be an evangelist, must be able to give pastoral care, must to some degree be a leader, and of course a preacher and a teacher. And must have the spirit of evangelism. Yeah. Right? I mean, even deacons must have, um, must be men who know to be filled with the spirit. But what I mean is have a desire to share the gospel with people and to see sinners saved. Right. Right. Uh, as my friend Al Baker puts it, an intolerable burden for the lost, <laughs> which we want our men to graduate with, but without a burden of debt. All right. Thank you, Lucas. We had a question come in online, Dr. Piper, that I'm going to bump up. And right. it's one that we've addressed before. It comes in from Anonymous. But Anonymous asks, does the American flag have any place? in the sanctuary or place of worship. And we, we had a question last month, right, about patriotism. So I'm glad this is, this is a very important follow-up question. You don't really need to be anonymous with it, I guess. Um, but, no, it doesn't. Uh, it is, I think, sends all kinds of wrong signals to put an American flag in the place of worship. We are citizens of a different country, we are citizens of a heavenly sphere, and when we gather for corporate worship or church life, that's who we are. Now, I'm all for patriotism. I'm actually, culturally, there'd be things about me that would—I'm uh, very committed to certain things of my culture and my past. But when I go to the church, I'm not going to be pressing those distinctive issues about my culture and my past. I want the body of Christ that is transcultural and trans generational. And so the flag is simply a sign of the wrong allegiance in the church. When we gather for worship, we're not gathering as Americans. We're, gra we're gathering as Christians. We're not gathering as white men or black men. We're gathering as Christians. We're not gathering as people from the city or from the country, but we're gathering as Christians. Well, we're also not gathering people from Cuba or Britain or America or Mexico. Or Canada. Yeah, or, or any, any is what the flag earthly kingdom. Exactly. Thank you, Anonymous. Yeah, it's always a good question. 
to receive. We're glad you're out there listening. <laughs> that is very encouraging. Yes. Our next question comes from Houtzeng Ao Young of Singapore. And Houtzeng asks, if a covenant youth who has not confessed his faith, has not made a profession of faith, denies the faith, or refuses to attend church in rebellion against his parents, or commits a scandalous sin, how far does the formal disciplinary procedure apply to him? See, it makes little sense to bar him from the Lord's table. He has no access to it in the first place. But Deuteronomy 21, 18 to 21, and also 1 Corinthians 5, 13, seems to imply that there is a, quote, putting away, end quote, that applies to the children within the covenant community, as well as those who are communing members. Thank you. Let me read Deuteronomy 21, 18. If any man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his father or his mother, and when they chastise him, he will not even listen to them, then his father and mother shall seize him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gateway of his hometown. They shall say to the elders of his city, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious, and he will not obey us. He's a glutton and a drunkard. And all the men of the city shall stone him to death. So you shall remove the evil from your midst, and all Israel will hear of it and fear. I think you're right to point to this uh, passage. A part of our problem today is the failure to understand that children are members of the church. And this is a very important part of our covenant theology, so that we baptize uh, our infants because we believe that they are members in the church, and we're formally inducting them into that membership. Now, the Southern Presbyterians, again, were very strong on this issue, that, uh, yes, they're not excommunicated technically in terms of the language, which means they're not put away from the Lord's table, but they should be put out of the church. And it sh- when we have uh, in the Old Testament these death penalties, well, they surely carry over to church discipline at the level of excommunication. And so uh, the covenant teenager who can, in a sense, do these things that are spelled out in Deuteronomy uh, 21 uh, should be removed from the role of the church publicly and warned that there's no salvation outside the church and we're giving you over to the rule of Satan as well that you might repent. You know, in the same way, positively, we should be urging our covenant youth to make their public profession of faith. Uh, it's not something to uh, tarry. Uh, they have been brought into covenant by Christ. He's made precious promises to them. They need to take hold of him by faith and then own him in uh, the covenant. So, yes, I think we should have a procedure of uh, putting these uh, rebellious uh, teenagers out of the church. Let me just piggyback, because it was very refreshing yesterday. I, I was uh, I'm preaching once a month for a church plant in another city, and from the earliest days, there's a couple that are a member of the church who has, uh, the man has a nephew who's not a Christian. Um, but every time I've gone there, I go once a month, this young man is at church. So I mentioned to uh, one of the elders on the phone, he says, well, he's living with uh, his uncle, although they look to be about the same age, uh, and they were told, if you're going to live with us, you're going to church and you will not work on Sunday. Now, if you want to live elsewhere, it's fine. Now, that's just a nephew. And what has disappointed me is when I see that uh, of Christian parents who are letting a, uh, a teenager or a, uh, an older youth 
uh, live at home and not have the rules, not have the rules about the Lord's Day and about public worship, things such as that. And then you always hear, well, you know, we're afraid that we'll, we'll estrange them if we do that. Well, it comes to a point where you're doing them more damage by letting them live with autonomy under your roof. Um, God blesses loving uh, discipline, and I encourage those of you listening, if you've got a child in that situation, uh, that if they're at home, put them under the, keep them under the means of grace. That's what God uses to convert them. So you would, you would recommend not to bar a, a covenant child or even somebody that's just living in your house with you for a season who's unconverted from things like family worship or or public worship. Right. Not bar, insist upon their being there. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Even if they show, even if they're disruptive and show signs of just gross rebellion against God. Well, if they're disruptive, I don't think I'll leave them in my home because they're going to be setting bad examples for my children as well. Then They have a choice to come respectfully to family worship and come respectfully to church or they're on the street. Hmm. Well, if it's one of your own children who's under 18, you may have already addressed that. Well, under 18, um, they go to the session. As we just read in Deuteronomy 21, they're put out of the, out of the church, but they still are going to be at home. They have to live by the rules. They can leave the home if they want to under, under 18. You can? Yeah. Well, I guess you could, yeah. All right. Well, anyway, thank you, Dr. Piper, and thank you for the question, Hout saying that was very valuable. Our next question comes from Davi Quaresma of Rio de Janeiro in Brazil, and he asks, what do you think about serving grape juice instead of wine in the Lord's Supper? Is Matthew twenty six twenty six a pattern of what to serve? That's where the phrase fruit of the vine is yeah, used. So that's the, the institution of the Lord's Supper, Matthew twenty six twenty six, and while they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after blessing, he broke it and gave it to his disciples. He said, take, eat. This is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Uh we know from the Passover that wine was being used. We know from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that wine was being used because people were getting drunk. You don't get drunk on grape juice. Uh, the Lord instituted wine, I think, for theological reasons. Uh, a couple of things. Our Savior uh, drank the cup of God's wrath, the wine, right down to the dregs. And a, a good, I like port because it's got a bit of a, bite to it and um, but then the other thing is that the wine is a gift of God to make glad the heart of man I like port because it's got a little bit of sweetness to it captures both of those things uh, and it does so well in in the Lord's uh, table and actually grape juice was not available uh, the grape so you talk about fruit of the vine in uh, 30 AD and uh, the the, the skin of the grape actually has within it enzymes, I think is the term I want, to cause fermentation. Uh, you cannot have a grape that you've squashed out that does not begin to ferment. In fact, every Thanksgiving time, November through December, one of my traditions is I buy um, Nouveau Beaujolais. It's a, 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 the new wine, 
and so it's not been put up in barrels. It comes straight from uh, the vat to the bottle, and it's uh, it's very fruity and fresh. But um, you know, it's just what grapes do. It's what God designed grapes uh, to do. Noah learned that lesson the hard way. But uh, grape juice was invented what in the 19th century, Zach? So. Because of invented by a Methodist, yes, a, a Methodist, Methodist layman who uh, was also a prohibitionist, right. and uh, or part of the temperance movement, and he wanted uh, to promote. He used the pasteurization process basically to burn away the alcohol, yeah. something like that. Yeah, and uh, so now what we encourage is use wine, but put a few cups of. There's they make a non-alcoholic wine now, which I don't know if it's superior to grape juice or not. Uh, and put a few things of those in the middle. And what yesterday I served communion to church, and I said, you know, if in conscience you can't use wine, uh, we've got a few cups here. They call it non-alcoholic wine in the middle. But we encourage you to use the wine. It's the first time we've ever served the Lord's Supper. The, the tray came back, and there had not been one of those non-wine cups taken. Uh, and so, but that's, we don't want people not to take the Lord's Supper because they, we must respect that God alone is Lord of the conscience. Thank you, Dr. Piper. We have some time for a couple more questions. This one comes from Chad Warner of Greenville, South Carolina, who usually gets in at the top of the program and somehow fell to the middle of the pack today. And he asks, should we buy from businesses that publicly promote anti-Christian values? Chad, it's a very thoughtful question. And uh, the first thing I think of is what our Savior says, if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. I think it's important that as Christians we do not take up the world's weaponry. And so if we're talking about an organized boycott of any particular company or product, I think that's the wrong direction for Christians to go. Christian-led, church-led boycott, don't go to these places. That's the sword. And you live by it, you die by it. As an individual Christian, there's a lot of places I will not go and spend my money because of their support either of lecherous lifestyles and homosexuality, um, uh, things like that. And so my wife and I, you know, we agree that there's just places that we uh, would not uh, shop. Uh, of course, and I think it's important that you mentioned publicly promote anti-Christian values because the owners of many companies uh, aren't Christians and they do all kinds of immoral things. But the company that puts its advertising money um, uh, and its store policies into uh, perverse and anti-Christian activities, I'm personally, if if I know of those things, uh, I'm not going to um, support them. But you know, uh, one of the more serious areas, according to the law of God, is the fourth commandment. And I, you know, I'm forced to buy from stores. If I want to buy groceries, I have to buy from a store that's open on the Lord's Day. But when I know that there is a business that does not open on the Lord's Day, then I'm going to spend my money with them. And I think that's a very positive statement as well. And I think it's very important that we, uh, again, and let them know. You know, we, there's a furniture store here in town that um, does not open on the Lord's Day. They have Bible studies for their 
uh, employees, and we let them know when we go in there that we're shopping here because of the positive things that you do. So I think that's important as well. And I think it's also important if you personally decide not to support a company that has become uh, uh, openly uh, uh, promoting perverse anti-Christian values, to tell them why you're not going to shop there as well. But so individual consciences, uh, I think it's important that you do what you do in that regard as couples, family, individuals, but I don't like the church organizing boycotts. This question uh, was asked right around the same time that I was reading Gospel Worship by Jeremiah Burroughs for Dr. Piper's winter term class on Reformed Worship. And Burroughs writes in the Soli Deo Gloria uh, edition of this on page 149, a man may sometimes employ in some business those who are naughty and wicked, and it may be no disgrace to him But if he entertains one in his house who is wicked, it is a dishonor to him. So God may employ the most wicked men in the world in some outward services, but if he should accept them in his worship, it would be a dishonor to God, and therefore God, that he might sanctify his own name, will manifest his displeasure at one time or another against such duties of worship. You who perform worship in a formal manner and with unclean hearts, I say it stands against the honor of God, and he continues on. But it just made me think, there's a big difference between, um, you know, doing you know, having a bank account with a uh, a bank, let's say, that you know is supporting legislation at the top for the uh, the all of the sexual promiscuity around in our culture and, and then having a picture of, like, your local bank in your home and you're celebrating that you do business with that bank or something, you know? It's, but, you know, I think that, I mean, what Burroughs says, you may employ such a person... Um, but that's a bit different from the public uh, investment of, uh, of a company in uh, immorality. So I, I think that's really where the question comes from. Yes, you can't make all your Christians be employees. Uh, well, I mean, if you're in a you know, you're building houses or whatever. You can't make all your employees be Christians. Yeah, that's what yeah. I should have said. Yeah, that's now, right. But, uh, you know, and the, just take the question a step further so we can really confuse you people out there. Because <laughs> uh, I had this asked me a couple of years ago. Your stock, your stock portfolio, uh, do you uh, go in there and scrutinize your stock portfolio uh, and so that, as best you know, there are no companies in there that support uh, anti-Christian activities? Because then you're doing what the liberals do. Um, are, and the question came to me was, now, do I support this? It was a picker group, Ave Maria Funds or something, and they are pro-life. But then they support, probably owned by the papacy, support the Roman Catholic Church. And so do you support the Roman Catholic Church by investing in that mutual fund, or do you uh, support Soros by investing in his uh, mutual fund, if he has one or not? But, uh, again, it becomes a matter of conscience. Frankly, I don't know um, what's in my portfolio, and I don't intend to waste the time to find out. Uh, I have more important things to do. I have a Christian stockbroker, and then I my denomination. Uh, I'm sure that they're very careful. But you know, it was just recently a, a person had to resign from uh, some kind of. Uh, oh, she was head of the uh, disease big federal epidemic. uh, The CDC? Yeah. The Center for Disease Control. Right. And 
found out that in her husband's portfolio there was a tobacco company and they were trying to actually were trying to divest themselves of it and it was uh, had not been able to do so in that portfolio and she had to resign from her job because here she's pr- promoting health and they have uh, tobacco uh, stock in their portfolio that's fairly absurd I think um, but again, she did it out of conscience. She did it for the sake of the Trump administration and not to become a lightning rod uh, with the work they were trying to accomplish. But they're difficult areas. You prayerfully um, work through them. And let me say now to back up what we said about social media, uh, the best place for those kind of decisions are your elders. And so uh, you get from the pastor and the ruling elders in the church or other men in the presbytery, and uh, you can get their opinion as well, and should. There is such a thing as values-based investing. I know of um, at least one or two financial services firms back north that are headed by evangelical Christians, and they only they promise their, uh, their clients that they will only invest in things that align with their values. Um, interesting proposition. And they seem to be quite successful with it. But we have time you for. You can always give us. Uh, we we could invest, a tr- do a trust here for Greenville Seminary. And that's true. Those? Trust. Uh, a charitable remainder charitable trust. trust. Yep. So if you really want to invest in somebody that you know is going to be godly and uphold your principles, then invest in Greenville Seminary. As we say here at the seminary, we are interested in perpetuating and enduring reformation. And we do that through equipping men for the ministry, for preaching the Bible preaching God's word. So if you're interested in enduring reformation, you can invest in us. We have time for one more question. Dr. Piper, in his 1849 book entitled Thoughts on Public Prayer, Samuel Miller addressed the claims of those who are advocating for imposed common liturgies upon the worship of the church. After treating the arguments for and against such prescribed forms of worship, he wrote the following in the context of a historical examination of Presbyterian practices. Quote, the Westminster Assembly agreed by a large majority to lay aside the use of all prescribed and imposed forms and to report in favor of extemporary prayer. But in order to avoid the imputation of opening the door too wide to irregular and undigested effusions in public worship, it was agreed to form and recommend to the parliament what was denominated a directory for the worship of God, end quote. He went on to show that the, that the directory was composed to address the violations of conscience that the common liturgy used in the Church of England affected on many Christians in England and elsewhere. My question is this, was the directory a crutch that replaced a straitjacket? How should Presbyterian churches today treat the directory for public worship? And what is the intended result of properly employing the directory for conducting worship? It's a false alternative. No, it's not a crutch. Um, But it's not the only way to go. The Presbyterian Puritans that were at the assembly also were in favor of what we want to call uh, discretionary uh, uh, rubrics. So they were all opposed to the imposed uh, Book of Common Prayer. It had no free prayer and no exercise of the gifts of the minister in leading prayer. But uh, they were not opposed, the Presbyterians were not opposed to having uh, suggested uh, prayers. Calvin used common prayer in his worship. The Scots did uh, as well, and many of the Presbyterians did. The directory of worship, though, is good. Uh, it's not a crutch, and it will help one order worship and 
you can actually take the suggestions there under prayer and, and also form prayers out of there. And the, the Presbyterian said that the Lord's Prayer was not only a pattern of prayer, but it was a form of prayer that could be used as a prayer. So they were not, they were not opposed to, and I think that Miller, and I'm, I require the book, but I think he goes a tad too far in his opposition to what we would call common prayer. It's the imposition of common prayer that is wrong requiring it. But the use of it, I think, is biblical and time-honored in the Reformed tradition. Thank you, Dr. Piper. Um, I commend to our listeners the book Thoughts on Public Prayer by Samuel Miller. It was published in 1849, just a year before Samuel Miller's death. The, um, the great old Princetonian professor, one of the original faculty members of Princeton Theological Seminary, and uh, we might revisit the conversation about the Directory of Public Worship next month. So please consider sending in a follow-up question, or we might just explore the proper uses of the Directory for Presbyterian churches. That brings us up on our time. Until next month, you've been listening to Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary and our Faith and Practice segment in particular. Dr. Piper, thank you for your time. Thank you, Zach. Always enjoy it. You've been listening to a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, please visit www.gpts.edu.